Welcome to episode 43 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, brought to you by Biophilico Healthy Buildings and Interiors. My name is Matt Morley, and in this episode, I'm chatting to Danielle Trophy, a biodesigner with her own studio in New York, who also lectures on biomimicry for the Pratt Institute and Parsons New School. Danielle's Mushloom collection of lampshades made from organically grown mushroom mycelium and hemp have featured in the seriously cool eco-luxury One Hotel Brooklyn Bridge, amongst various other projects, and she is a leading proponent of biofabrication, that is, using naturally grown materials in product design as a healthy, non-impact alternative to, for example, using other materials such as plastic. Our conversation covers all of these bio terms that may understandably be new for some of you. We also look at the full lifestyle impact of product and a product design from its initial creation through to its end of life. We look at how biophilic design can, unfortunately, when delivered uh, inadequately, be effectively a form of superficial greenwashing of the interior design process. And we introduce the topic of green chemistry, that is research and development around new bio-based materials that talented designers such as Danielle then integrate into their future product development. Links to Danielle's work are in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode, please hit like or subscribe. Now it's time to dive into the wonderful world of biodesign. Danielle, thanks for being here with us today for this episode. We're going to start sort of big picture and then slowly drill down. But let's let's begin with some terminology. So biodesign and biofabricated design, which is very much your world. Like how do you describe those for someone who perhaps is coming to this for the first time? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, what I've what I've kind of determined and what others have determined as in this past decade or maybe even a little bit further, um, biodesign as a term has kind of come out in two different fields, one in the medical field and one more in the design field. And it's serving a purpose as almost this catch-all term that incorporates biomimicry, biofabrication, biophilic design, and really kind of embodies all these things into one um, umbrella uh, term to, <laughs> to kind of help those who don't really know what each of those different facets really means so that we can all kind of have the same conversation. Um, so what is the difference between these different things? So we've got biofabrication, which is something that I do. And biofabrication is using a living organism to actually grow the design for you. Um, so you're typically extracting something from nature or not. You can actually grow it in a lab too. And um, and using that living organism to, to do the producing for you. So you're not doing the manufacturing and the organism is actually doing that. And these types of organisms are mycelium, the roots of mushrooms, um, bacteria, uh, algae, um, kombucha, uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of this different little subset. And then you've got biophilic design, which is really kind of the visual, um, copying of nature. So we are all bio, um, we all have biophilia, uh, so we connect to nature. Um, and biophilic design is really kind of tapping into that emotional, that, um, that very native energy that we all have, um, that we want to connect again to nature, that we are a part of nature. 
And then biomimicry is kind of, um, it's a bit deeper. So it goes into looking at nature's form, process, and ecosystem, these three different levels. And seeing this across, um, these patterns across different taxa, and then drawing out these principles to emulate into human design. And that's a little bit wordy, but I think we can get a little more <laughs> into that. But I wanted to kind of give a little bit of a primer of biodesign is, is a big area that is really divided into subsets of um, how design can, can actually be categorized. I think it's very clear that you're, you've grasped, you've got done more than grasp the concept. You've mastered those concepts because it's often so difficult to, to give a, a pithy, short, succinct description of concepts like that, which you, you just managed to do. So thank you for that. I think it was really important to, to set the scene. And I think linked to that, you, you do work in a more, let's say, almost sort of educational role before we get into the products that you're creating as a, as a designer. You also do an element of, of teaching and, and guest lectures, right? So it would be really interesting to understand what you're doing there, who your audience are, and the type of top su subjects that you're talking to. I think primarily around biomimicry, is that right? Yes, correct. So I've been teaching at uh, Pratt um, Institute and um, the new school, um, Parsons, in Manhattan. And we teach, I've been teaching biomimicry and also biodesign. Um, a kind of that, that greater area that that's not incorporated. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that, that is the hardest thing we, we, as I try to, to help orient each of the students to understanding what this new field, and that's really what it is. It is a new unfolding field, um, that these terms are really being birthed from as we're, as we're, um, experimenting with them. So, the terminology can also vary from um, region to region. So I know in the UK and in Germany, there's different terminologies for biomimicry. So we're really just um, as a whole, just trying to come up with um, a language to be able to talk about um, these particular topics. It's um, something that I see from where I'm at with a, let's call it a largely European view, I think is, you know, there's so much discussion now, especially where we are going into 2022 around healthy buildings and healthy materials on one side and on the other. So kind of the, the wellness piece around people and how our built environment can have an impact on our health. And on the other side, the impact of the built environment, both positive and negative on uh, the environment, on the planet around us. And listening to your descriptions, you know, it's, it's really clear that what you're doing, so let's give it that, that wider umbrella term of biodesign, sits brilliantly between both, right? It is, it is not contributing waste, it is not damaging the environment, but it is also producing products and materials that are inherently healthy. And therefore, you're bridging the two. There is no distinction between whether it's only good for, for us or good for the planet. The, work that you're doing seems to just bridge the two worlds quite neatly. And I think that's a particular angle that I find that just has such potential. Yeah, I would say if done correctly. Hmm. <laughs> so okay. is, let's talk about that. There, yeah, there is maladapted biomimicry or biofabrication or biophilic design, right? So 
you could create something that looks exactly like a tree, but if you're using materials that can't be recycled, that take tremendous amount of energy to actually create that are mined unsustainably, you're not really completing the holistic viewpoint of what biomimicry is, or hopefully in the larger sense, biodesign. So just because it can fall under that label doesn't really necessarily mean that it's good for both people or the planet. So there really is, we, <laughs> and there's nobody really there to judge what it is. Um, so we're kind of evolving together to be able to evaluate our own designs. So even if you are taking inspiration from nature, do you have the understanding and the tool set to be able to authentically evaluate it in a way that um, you understand the life cycle, you understand um, where it's coming from, how it's affecting humans and nature in the process of whatever form it's taking place. And then at the end of its life, how is it going to end or fold back into our systems and cycles? And those are kind of the three major things that any life cycle analysis um, really taps into. And, um, and that definitely has to be brought into the design process, whether that's biophilic design, biodesign, biofabrication, biomimicry. I think um, one thing that really stands out when you practice biomimicry or learn biomimicry is there's a greater, there's a greater framework for ensuring that the design meets all those needs throughout the process from inception to, um, to actually the production of it, to the use case, and then to the end of life. And, um, and this framework kind of ensures that the number one thing in biomimicry is life, condu um, life creates conditions conducive to life. And that's all of life. That's the big L. And, um, and you don't often see that kind of aspiration um, that creates a cornerstone in, in the other bio what's, as we call it. And so that's where I feel biomimicry as a whole, as a movement, as a profession, as a discipline is emerging as a more rigorous um, uh, framework for creating design that really does take in consideration our health and the health of the planet. And you've, you're very much practicing what, what you preach in that sense, you, you apply those same, the theory into a practical application via your own products. And so that in a sense leads us into the mushrooms and the, the lampshades you're working on or have been working on and that, that certainly caught my eye originally and that was how we, we first connected. So why don't we talk a little bit about what you're doing there in terms of actually going into the products yourself rather than uh, just theorizing your, your delivering and, and really creating a, a great example, a case study in a way of, of how it can connect with these concepts of biomimicry. Sure. Yeah, so about eight years ago, I started working with this amazing material um, that was coming out of upstate New York that was created by Ecovative, and it's mushroom mycelium material. And so for anyone who doesn't know what mycelium is, 
it is the roots of a mushroom. So just like an apple is the fruit of a tree, mushroom is the fruiting body of this network of mycelia that live beneath the forest floor. Um, in nature, it's uh, the big recycler. You know, it decomposes all dying and decaying matter in a forest or in an ecosystem. It connects all plants in an ecosystem. It actually is nature's communicator. It shares information. Um, can send and warn other plants of impending danger, um, distributes water in a forest, uh, nutrients, actually shares nutrients from one side of a forest where it's concentrated to the whole rest of um, the forest. So it really is this incredible uh, organism that is actually one of the largest terrestrial organisms on the planet. There's um, one network that's known to be a couple thousand years old in Oregon and stretches several football fields long. So <laughs> we take something like this that has this incredible intelligence and instead of extracting it out of nature, like we often do for most of our goods, we are, um, we are inoculating it in a lab and being able to reproduce it in a lab and then combine this, so that's in a liquid form, it's liquid mycelium, um, this cells. We're inoculating a substrate that's sustainably um, harvested. So we use hemp. Um, and we are just like nature do what it does best is grow. And we're putting it into an environment that it wants to grow in. So the mycelium grows and binds to the hemp. And over a course of just a few days, uh, you will see this white mat structure um, that actually solidifies all of the hemp. The hemp is used as um, support material for it to grow into um, and also food as well. Uh, so the cellulose, it wants to digest um, the cellulose. So to give an understanding of the application of a lampshade, we create these forms, we pack them with the substrate that's already been inoculated, and then we just leave them to grow. We're not adding additional water, energy into the production process. So um, our largest lampshade, which is a 24 inch diameter dome, takes about a week to grow. And <laughs> if you think about this time frame, uh, to be able to use wood, you know, you're you're looking at anywhere from 25 to 100 years old years of a tree growing out in nature and then you're harvesting this and you're putting all this energy into being able to process the material to use it. We are inoculating uh, mycelium in a lab, um, transporting it a very short distance and then letting it grow in the course of just a few weeks, you have your end product. Um, so you can already start to see the life cycle change. Another most important part, which is, is something that um, we're not necessarily familiar with, but we're starting to to understand its value is at the end of its life, it's just going to decompose. Traditionally, in the last couple, maybe last hundred years, we've really wanted things to last. We want things to last as long as possible. We want them to be super durable. But we're starting to find out, especially since um, the invention of plastics, that these might not be the best concepts. Um, and uh, rather than using materials that we're not quite sure how they're going to break down to an elemental form and affect our own bodies. 
we know exactly what's in these lampshades and they're going to actually add nutrients back into the soil rather than pollutants. So that's a, a completely different concept to a lot of our traditional goods. Um, and often people are like, well, <laughs> is it going to break down in my living room? And it's not, it's, it's actually a very inert material. We do bake it at the end of its growth cycle. And that's mainly to actually damage the cells enough. So it won't continue to grow in your living room. It won't spore, it won't shoot off mushrooms. Um, and so those were our potential allergens. Uh, so that's mainly why we, we stop the growth at that level. Uh, but it's completely stable, inert material in your living room. There's nothing that's going to break it down or eat it and digest it. And um, they actually have this incredible, soft, um, almost feels like a lamb's ear um, feel to them. So it's a it's something that you actually want to touch. And there's not many lamps out there that um, inspire you to, to interact with it. And of course, having that, it's a conversation piece, being able to talk with um, your guests at the dining room table about the fixture that's overhead. I even um, have recounted the story already of how when we first connected and I was asking, I think I needed an order of uh, 40 or 50 of, of these lamps. And you were like, look, well, I got to grow these things first. So you got to give me four to six weeks just to get her. And it was just a completely different way of thinking about purchasing something. And indeed, as you're, you're, you're rightly pointing out, how long it will be with us and how long we really need something to be with us and where that sweet spot is between durability and practicality. And on the other extreme, you know, frankly, something that is impossible to break down and that will therefore always be on the planet and therefore just ends up polluting. And I think that what you're doing is especially interesting on that basis. But I wondered whether the lampshade had anything inherently suited to this particular medium. So could you have done any other number of things? I mean, you went for that. Have you got an entire collection in your mind of where you'd like to go with the material? Or is there something about the lampshade that is best suited to this working with mycelium? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. Um, part of the story was, uh, so Ecovative at the time was working mainly in packaging. So using the material to, to displace styrofoam, um, which, is a, a fantastic use for it. And um, we reached out to them and we ordered samples and we wanted to start working with them. And with the idea of using it for a lampshade, and it was kind of a crazy idea at, at that level um, eight years ago. And it ended up being one of the best use cases for it because of the materials properties. So to give everyone a, a better idea of it, um, the when fully grown, it's very lightweight. It almost feels has the density of styrofoam, um, but has a much softer, nicer uh, exterior coat, which is actually the mycelium. So when you feel the lampshade, it um, you're feeling the outside of the mycelium that has grown, um, and what we call its its standoff. So you can actually tune the material so you can grow it thicker. You can grow it not as thick. Um, you can kind of play with a little bit of coloring. So it actually naturally expresses color. So we do have some that um, are not completely white. And that's the other thing about them. Once it's grown, the mycelium is actually white, 
naturally, and that's how we leave them. So there's not any paint that's added to them. Um, that's just the natural form that the mycelium takes. And um, yeah, so we originally thought of, of a lampshade for it, or I thought of a lampshade for it. Um, and it became a great use case because uh, the material is really structurally sound. It's great for packaging, for single-use packaging. Um, but it has limitations in terms of, you know, it's difficult for a high-use chair or stool or something that is going to get bumped up against, rubbed up against, knocked over. Over time, it might chip, wear, crack. Um, so for something that's not in a high-use place that's, you know, hanging above your ceiling or uh, your table lamp that's not always being touched or knocked over, it's a perfect case for it. And we've really been able to explore with different shapes as well, especially earlier on. We did a lot of um, uh, very interesting shapes. And through this process, we also had to kind of uh, realize, well, what does it take to become a stable product? So there was a number of years of getting over shipping issues, of modifying the form so that when they ship, they don't crack or break or um, that the way that they're constructed together, they can be installed by um, the consumer, not just a professional. So there were all the other logistical parts that um, that really go into creating a product that one as a designer and not and this was my first lighting product I was not aware of. So there was a huge learning curve and also just getting to a place where this biotechnology could be could be mastered in a way that all the contamination issues were contained. So there were huge learning curves of bringing this biotechnology to a place where you could commercialize a product. And right where we are now is um, kind of the culmination of that. Uh, I work now with a company. I used to grow everything in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I had a, um, a studio space here and I would grow each one by hand. And um, just uh, over this past year, year and a half, we moved production to a company out in California who now grows all the lampshades um, for the studio. So uh, we're able to finally expand past my own capabilities and, uh, and, and really grow during um, this last year. And it's been a fantastic year of growth. You're really seeing um, not just the general public, but industry start to really opt in to biodesign. And we've, um, it's very encouraging because uh, at the beginning of starting to work with this material, no one really knew what mycelium was. It was kind of a new term. False stamens really uh, deserves all the credit for bringing mycelium to the forefront, bringing mushrooms to the forefront. Um, and uh, the conversations really shifted in the last five years. So people know what mycelium is. There's all these startups around the world now working with mycelium. Um, where when I first started, there was maybe a handful around the world. Um, we're talking single digit, digits. So it's really been larger than just one studio or just a few companies. It's now so many young startups um, working around biomaterials because they see the value in creating new products that are not going to necessarily <laughs> um, pollute the planet or provide um, a negative impact. 
The other big player then that I think deserves a mention in our conversation is is algae, which seems mm-hmm. to be you know as often mentioned in the same breath along with mycelium. Are you working with algae? Have you got experience of of the challenges and opportunities of working with that particular biomaterial? Yeah, just when I started working with it, and it was for a completely different um, project, uh, I ended up um, closing the studio um, to, to shift a little bit. And, um, but we do work with it in terms of, we've started working with a algae-based pigment to color the lampshades. So we're, we haven't launched it yet, but we're working with artists and designers to actually paint on our lampshades using algae ink. Um, and so this is another startup company that's, uh, I believe they're in Colorado and they've developed a ink pigment um, just derived from algae, which is fantastic. Um, so that's uh, that's pretty much the capacity that we have been been working with algae. But um, there's um, also these amazing startups using algae to grow fabric or grow um, fibers, and to be able to start affecting the fashion industry by creating sustainable sustainable fibers. Um, so there really is just a plethora of new ideas that are trickling out. And a lot of this is happening. It's starting at um, the higher education level. It's starting in universities and colleges. Um, there's uh, the Biodesign Challenge, which is a, uh, a nonprofit organization that has a worldwide competition for um, young students to be able to create biodesign um, applications and then have them be judged uh, by professionals within the field. And there's been so many startups that have come from just these kinds of competitions. And you're really starting to see this field being driven by people that are under 30. <laughs> so, uh, and I really, I do believe it's the generation that's underneath mine that is really going to power everything in terms of sustainability because they've inherited something that generations before did not inherit. And, um, and there has to be action. So I think a lot of the biodesign field is really about taking action is not necessarily just the study and the, the concept of it, but how are we actually going to make the goods that restore balance back to our larger ecosystems? And that's, I think, where you start to see the connections between designers and and brands that share a similar philosophy. And the One Hotel brand arguably has has been sort of leading the charge in the hospitality sphere. I think they sort of reinvented what what eco luxury could mean. It had always struggled to sort of hit that five star market until One Hotels came along and showed what could be done. And then you get the big uh, project with them in in Brooklyn Bridge. So. Can you talk to us a bit about about that? It was a few years back, but it's um it's a big one in terms of the name, the prestige, and the seal of approval that it gives to you, and I think in general what they're doing to push the, the sustainability message within an industry that hasn't always been at the the forefront of of adopting this a green and healthy approach, right? Yeah. Oh no, it was fantastic working with One Hotel. Um, it really was that project that elevated our lampshades to the next level. 
we did um, uh, 100 plus, I think it was around like 130 lampshades, um, this huge cloud of them in the presidential suite at the One Hotel Brooklyn Bridge. And just working with One Hotel as a partner, um, it it was really fantastic because they they understood the value. We had the same messaging. Um, and to share those values and be able to create different um, kinds of opportunities where the public can take can participate. So, for instance, we had a exhibit um, at Industry City where people could come in and see the lampshades being grown for the hotel. So we did a month long gallery exhibit and um, hosted some events there. So anybody could actually come in and see the processing, the growing the process. Because one of the things I've realized uh, is to to hear what the conversation that we're having now, it's really difficult to not see, physically see, feel the material and watch the process. So demystifying that experience was really valuable. Um, and we also hosted some events with their um uh, with their staff as well. So everybody's really engaged and buying into um, to just what the value of the hotel represents um, as well as their, their clients. And um, yeah, and it was gorgeous. The uh, it's still up there today. And um, the images that we got from that really kind of captured the possibilities of what the lampshades could, could do and have inspired a few other hotel um uh, installations. And um, we really have grown from that. I think those images, when we were able to to share those, it really did solidify that this is, um, this is not just a, a case study. This is not just um, a, a, a single project, um, but this is actually a commercialized project product. And that differentiation was huge. Um, because you're really getting out of this like boutique small niche and you're expanding into um, let's let's compete against other other big brands for lighting. And we've really seen a lot of growth since then uh, and adoption. For sure. I can imagine. And you've also got a, a vertical garden product that looks to be essentially sort of an upright vertically oriented planter for for, for multiple plants. I'm wondering if you've got more things in the pipeline. Like where do you go from here? Like what's what's next for you as a as a designer and as a business? Yeah. So the vertical um, garden was actually originally a hydroponic vertical garden. So that was the first product I ever created, and um, we launched that with one design. I think back in like 2012, and it really kind of grew into. We did a couple installations with BMW. The um, vertical garden now exists in um, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. So if you go to their visitor center, you can see it there. And um, it's something that hasn't completely come to full realization, uh, mainly because I started getting into the lighting and that kind of took off. Uh, but it's something I do want to bring back. And um, one of the main reasons this was lagging is because at the time there wasn't the tools to be able to create those planter pods. They look, kind of look like alien eggs, if you will. Uh, so we created them out of thermoformed plastic and it was, it kind of went against everything that me as a designer and as a studio believed in. So 
we've kind of been in this holding pattern to get to the right materiality and the right process to be able to recreate this. And that's actually being done right now um, with many more sustainable materials. Um, We're actually looking at upcycling um, food waste to be able to be used into the, um, the ceramics of the planter pods. So that's definitely something that's happening in the future and currently happening. Um, so we hope to actually come out with a full product and not just um, an installation using kind of staying, staying with the same principles that we have with the lighting. And I think for future, uh, it's a good question. <laughs> I recently became a mom. So a lot of things have really shifted. Um, and I see, I think one of the things that as going through this, this um, my own evolution with biomimicry, with biodesign and becoming a mother is I was made aware of the fact that, um, you know, even a fetus can contain over a hundred different man-made chemicals at that stage. And uh, just learning about different products that are available for kids and for infants And it's extremely, extremely difficult to find healthy materials um, for children as well as for interiors and being able. And so I think that's the the next thing I want to get into is green chemistry and being able to actually bring products that um, that are not toxic to our environments and to fruition. And um, I think that's that's the main thing is keeping everyone healthy and as well as the environment. So the green chemistry thing for for those who are perhaps not clued up on it that's really where the the R&D is taking place and that then facilitates people such as yourself as a designer to then create the products that you envision that then are sold to the industry but in a commercial way to people like One Hotels and any other hotel brands or other clients out there. And I think those three pieces, in a sense, you've our one conversation has sort of straddled those three elements, right? Because if you haven't got the green chemistry providing you with what you need, the tools and the materials to do what you do to create the products, then the products don't materialize. But if there isn't also the consumer, the end market there to make it a viable business, then the products don't materialize. And so it's this this sort of delicate dance is what I'm getting from you around uh, sort of pushing things forward. But if the materials aren't ready or the the technical R&D side, the green chemistry isn't ready, then you almost have to pause a product like you did with the vertical gardens, leave it there until the technology catches up. And then hopefully the market is ready to then buy that product. And so it's complex, but it's clearly... You know, you're right in the thick of it, and and contributing to it and pushing it forward, and and that's the only way that it's gonna it's gonna keep progressing, right? Is people doing what you're doing? No, exactly. And I think um, I think what you're doing, the value of a podcast, is the only reason why these fields are advancing is the communication of them, is the communication of these ideas, and um, you know, getting the understanding of the basics of what biodesign is, biomimicry, biophilia, all of the bio what's um, to those that are participating in the industry as well as consumers, because um, consumers are driving the demand for 
these things as well. Clients are asking for things that are more sustainable. And they're also starting to ask the questions, well, where does this come from and how is it made? And I think those are the, and where does it end up will be the next question that they're going to ask. So I think when we start to ask those three questions at every stage of the design process, we really, the holistic sustainability is built into, um, and built into the design if you're continuously asking yourself those things. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much. It, it feels like we're all pointing in the same direction, hopefully trying to make a little bit of a difference, right? That's that's the game. So just out of interest, like your products are available in Europe. Are you US only at the moment? So if we have listeners both in Europe and in the US, how can they connect with you and eventually become a part so of what it, you're doing? Yeah. So in the US, you can go to danielletrophy.com. And that's T-R-O-F-E. And then uh, in Europe, we are available through grown.bio. So G-R-O-W-N.bio. Awesome. We'll put the yeah. links in the show notes. Thank awesome. you so much for your time. It was great. Thank you. I enjoyed it.